0: And now for something completely different. It's a world. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money. Markets. Life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance
1: Roberts. Presented by
0: RIA Advisors.
1: And good morning and welcome back to, well, the... Uh, First show, I guess really the first show of the new month. I mean, we did we did actually do one on Friday, which was, you know, just pushing into the, the beginning of the month. But really, this is kind of kicking off the month of July, second quarter season. And so as we get into this, we're gonna talk a little bit today about what Claire Crawley, what tropical storms, and what retail investing all have in common. They're all trending on trending on Google, uh, Google, right? So we'll spit that out. Glo- trending <laughs> on Google. <laughs> Or as my dad used to say, trending on the Google. The so, Google. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, but that's what that's all all's going on. And, and so as we kind of look at where we are here, we are kicking off the second half of the year. The first half of the year has been one for the record books. This has been a very, very strong first half of the year, of course, not surprising, of, of you know, with continued Fed liquidity, et cetera, reopening of the economy. It's all been very good, very strong economic data. The question is, though, is can that continue as we get into the second half of the year? Now, beginning this week, really, we're going to get into Q2 earnings for companies. This is where we're going to start seeing really the peak of uh, you know a lot of the data, both economic data as well as earnings data. We'll start to kind of really see the peak of this data because this is the quarter, because we're now going to be talking about quarter two. This is going to be the quarter compared to the shutdown of the economy in 2020. So the year-over-year comparisons are going to be fantastic. I mean, they're going to be great. We're going to see very strong economic growth, probably GDP coming in somewhere around 9 or 10% on an annualized basis. You're going to see earnings growth be very, very strong this quarter. But after this, is there going to continue to be growth? Absolutely. It will just be at a much slower rate. And the comparison on a year over year basis will start to make those numbers look a lot smaller very quickly. So, in other words, we're very rapidly going to return now back towards getting a GDP report talking about two, two and a quarter percent economic growth by the end of this year, rather than seeing these, uh, these alarmingly large numbers of six, eight, nine, 10 percent, right? So, those this is all going to pass behind us. So, all this that has been going on in the market, all this liquidity pushed by the Fed, et cetera. That's going to start to really kind of play itself out here over the next month or so now. Does that mean the markets are about to have a major crash? No, that's not what it means. It just means that basically we've baked in a lot of very good news in the first half of this year. And so the question is going to be what keeps driving asset prices higher other than the Fed balance sheet? Because there's the real question. The Fed started to face issues of higher inflation here. So... In the next couple of months, we're gonna see the Jackson Hole Summit. This is where the Fed most likely is going to seriously talk about tapering their balance sheet. Last time that they really did a severe taper their balance sheet was in uh, 2014, 2015, and markets kind of threw a little tantrum over that. And of course, the Fed started hiking rates in 2018, and we had a 20% sell-off at that point as well. So again, markets don't like when the Fed starts taking away the punch bowl. They tend to throw a little temper tantrums, and you know investors are very very finicky about their liquidity. So again, market's doing very well here. Again, nothing wrong here. Market is very overbought on a short-term basis. Money flows have turned back up nicely. So again, not, nothing to worry about here, as we've been talking about in the newsletter for the last couple of weeks. You know We added some exposure here. Market's been rising, been fine, no big deal. Um, the, the problem here is we're moving very quickly through this buy signal as uh, we suspected we would. We think we'll get about another week or so of potential kind of upside lift to the markets. Then we're going to get into the last half of July, August, and September, which typically tend to be much weaker months of the market. So, again, use this rally to your benefit. Again, uh, Thursday and Friday, very light volume days because nobody was around, <laughs> really, uh, because of the holidays. But, again, those those uh, that rally was decent. Uh, markets have broken out to a new high. So, again, got a little bit of acceleration there. But, again, this market's been very concentrated into the big, large-cap names. If we take a look at, for instance, small-cap stocks, have not been performing well at all here this is where those meme stocks are right the retail investor where they're all playing those stocks really not doing all that well. Mid-caps, kind of really the same story here, not doing well at all here. Have, have, you know, Mid-caps have not really gone anywhere now in a couple of months. So the concentration, the overall breadth of the market, right, still remains very concentrated into the, the FANG stocks, the Apples, the Microsofts, the Facebooks, the Googles. That's really what's been driving the markets here lately. And what that tells you is, is that money's hiding in these bigger large cap liquidity names. And there's two things to really kind of notice here, or at least be aware of, is that market peaks ultimately are where you see a lot of activity of this type, where money's hiding in certain areas of the market. Uh, Another good indicator, of course, is when private equity companies are basically liquidating their positions as fast as they can. We're gonna have the largest share of private equity liquidating positions this year ever on record. Now what does that mean? Well, it just means that people that have invested in companies that have been illiquid, they are using the market's exuberance here as an opportunity to get out. And they are rushing to get stuff to market as fast as possible to get out while the getting's good. And typically this type of activity, we saw saw a peak in private equity activity back in 2007, 2008. We saw a peak in private equity activity in 1999, 2000. You typically see this exodus of private equity from markets near peaks of markets, because again, things are just about as good as they can get. And and they're going, hey, we gotta go. Uh, You're seeing uh, just numerous Issues of this really kind of in various forms, right? IPOs coming out. Robinhood, uh, the the personal trading app, is about to go public. We're seeing other shares uh, of companies going public through what they call SPACs, these special purpose acquisition vehicles. This is the type of activity, right? This uh, this exodus from private uh, private ownership. Is what you see kind of really at the peak of the frenzy of the market. So again, doesn't mean the markets are gonna to crash tomorrow, doesn't mean it's gonna crash next week or even next year. I mean, you know, there's the, the, what requires a, a crash is this. Is an kind of an unexpected event, right? Something we're not counting on. But what you have is all the underlying ingredients, right? You got the fuel of a lot of margin debt. You've got this uh, this kind of retail sentiment that I can't lose by investing in the markets. That's typically what you see near peaks. You've got at the same time that you've got retail investors piling into the markets. You've got private equity companies, professionals getting out of the market. So it, lots of mixed signals here that really tell you much about the underlying strength of the markets in particular. But again, nothing to worry about here at the moment over the next couple of days. But I would certainly suggest potentially using this rally, rebalance risk, lower some exposure here over the next couple of weeks. Because again, you know, my, my inclination is, and, and again, things will change and we will change with whatever the signals are telling us but my inclination is is that sometime around august september um we're likely to see a little bit more sloppiness in the markets again um, we're just getting fairly deviated from moving averages and as we've seen historically you don't stay deviated from those moving averages for very long the 50 days been a really good base to kind of work off of you get too far above it you get a correction back to it that's been a good buying opportunity that will ultimately change as well at some point. We're going to break that 50-day moving average and keep going. But for right now, it's a really good place to put a stop on your portfolio. Um, when we come back from the breaks, we'll talk a little bit more about this retail kind of view of the markets. It's today's Technically Speaking report. If you want to see all the charts and graphs, it's on, it's on our website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. But when we come back, we'll talk about, is the retail investor rampage over Right, uh, We saw a lot of that earlier this year, um, but have retailers kind of done their deal, right? Are they done with it? We'll come back and talk about that right after the break. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. We'll be right back. One, another one the
0: Another one gone, another one I'm going to you Another one bite to dust Get, get daily out investment out news out you out can out use. Out Delivered out out at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. You could be one of the seven in ten people requiring long-term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than $7,600 a month? Our next virtual Lunch & Learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long-term care. Long-term care. Register at realinvestmentadvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long term care July 8th at noon realinvestmentadvice.com You're listening to the Real Investment Show Everybody get up
1: I can always tell when Richard Ross has been in studio <laughs> <laughs> My mic's down by my waist <laughs> That's the
0: long and the short of it.
1: (laughs) Just teasing. Sort of. (laughs) So a couple of things, uh, as I was saying a second ago, one of the things that's really been kind of the focal point of the market now over the course of the last really year has been the retail investor and, you know, the meme stocks like AMC and GameStop and, you know, this kind of... uh, piling in of retail investors. In fact, retail investors make up more of the markets now than any other point in history. And, you know, not surprising, of course, as we've also discussed several times on the show is, of course, when you give people a lot of money and and combine that With a shutdown of all the sports betting, all those retail investors that were, I shouldn't, sorry, let me rephrase that. All those individuals that were previously sports gamblers that couldn't gamble on sports, they turned to the stock market to gamble, right? And so you had this big infusion of cash coming into the markets, governments putting in 20% of GDP, and that money found its way back into the stock market. There's nowhere else to spend it, right? I couldn't go to a sporting's event. I couldn't go out to eat. I couldn't do anything. So might as well throw it into the market and, and gamble with it a bit. And so we really enhanced the speculative nature of the markets. In other words, just kind of hung a sign over the, the door of Wall Street and said, the casino is open. Please come in. And so retail investors did. And, you know, what's interesting, of course, is that um, as I show you, on the, I've got this chart here of millennial and Gen Z investors. Now, millennials are those that are just past the baby boomers, and Gen Z are basically their kids, right? So, millennials are just turning late 30s, you know, and 40 right now. Gen Zs are the 20s and and you know, late 20s and, and early 30s, kind of coming up as, as you know, as we kind of go through these cycles. And it's interesting if you talk to a baby boomer, most of the baby boomers get their information from financial media channels, the Wall Street Journal, they have an advisor, that type of things. As you move into millennials, not so much trust for financial advisors, they primarily get their information from YouTube. About 40% of millennials get their, their financial investing information from YouTube channels. Uh, talking to friends or family make up another 31%. Financial advisors, 29%. So it's still up there, right? TikTok is 15%. Instagram is 18%. So on down the list, Twitter, Facebook groups, podcasts, Reddits, books, magazines, newspapers. Okay. Um, Wall Street Journal, 11%. <laughs> I mean, nobody reads a paper anymore. Um, Gen Zs, on the other hand, a little bit different. 44% get their information from YouTube. 41% from TikTok. Now, there's nothing wrong with this, right? I mean, you're watching YouTube right now. So there's not, I'm not saying that there's not professional investors giving out information on YouTube or TikTok or others. No, there are, right? You know, there are legit financial people out there giving good investment advice on social media. So nothing, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. However, the majority of the people that are getting their information from are, 19 and 21 year olds that are talking about trading meme stocks, how to trade your way to wealth. And and then and the point is is that most of the uh, that uh, a large majority of the people on TikTok and on YouTube are people who have never actually been through a bear market. And so where they're getting their information from is somewhat suspect to say the least about where they're investing or what they're investing in, but that Information is that confirmation bias that fuels their speculative investing activity and, and the chase into those stocks. And so, you know, this is what we saw earlier this year where, you know, the number of average trades at Schwab and, and others have just spiked completely uh, in the markets. So There's just been a, a tremendous surge of retail investors piling in. And you'll notice that that piling in occurred right around – March of 2020, right? So we shut down the markets, start sending people money, and this is where people really all started kind of piling into the market. So literally, you know, not surprising here, this going on. But here's the interesting thing. If we go to Google Trends, right? This is where we start getting kind of some interesting information about what's going on in the market. So, you know, earlier this year, we had a big spike in activity in the markets, right? We had a lot of that... Um, surge in activity right around February as the Biden administration passed their uh, plan, their their spending plan that issued out another $1,400 of checks of stimulus. And since then, people, you know, kind of Googling how to learn how to trade stocks has declined sharply. Same thing about people that are saying, how do I invest in stocks has also declined sharply. So in other words, They got their money, they put it in the markets, and really the markets haven't gone much of anywhere since then, and they're kind of losing interest. How to trade options on Robinhood has declined sharply, even as uh, Robinhood is now getting ready to go public. How to invest in Dogecoin or Doggycoin. Has virtually become non-existent after the fifty percent crash or more, and some of these uh, crypto coins, people lost a lot of their money. Uh, yeah, not so interested anymore in that. Meme stocks like AMC uh, Theaters, that interest has uh, spiked up at the beginning of May. Um, that's starting to wane back off here again. Wall Street bets, interestingly enough, <laughs> is uh, become not of interest at all at this point. In fact, there's been quite a few people that have been talking about lately that Wall Street bets has kind of given themselves over to the Wall Street machine, right? And so people getting kind of disenchanted of that, moving to other channels. So kind of a flash in the pan there for Wall Street bets, but it kind of reminds me of what Yogi Berra once said. Nobody ever goes there anymore. It's too crowded. <laughs> Um, so you know, but that's kind of the thing. Um, you know, it reminds me too when when I was you know, young and growing up, and 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 you know, my mom used to always say stuff like, you know, it's all fun and games till so somebody gets their eye put out, and that's really kind of what happens in markets is that you know, all these retail investors we we, we pile in, we're making money hand over fist. It's all fun and games, and then something goes inherently wrong, and that's when things happen i mean you know when i was growing up <laughs> you know we would go out in the backyard and have bb gun wars and you know this is what this was with those pump air rifles remember those the good stuff the good stuff and they had brass bbs i mean i would literally come in and have bbs embedded in my skin right but we weren't wearing face masks and mouthpieces i mean no i mean those you know, Everybody was just running around, shooting each other with BB guns. We thought it was all good fun and games, right? Riding bikes without helmets. We rode in cars without seatbelts. Oh, my gosh. Um, (laughs) You know, we did a lot of things. We all survived. Amazingly enough, we did survive. Um, But this is the point is that today, you know, back then, if something happened, you know, it was our fault. And we had to accept responsibility for it. The problem that's going to come from all of this speculative activity is when this blows up, and it will, it's just a function of time. Everybody's going to start looking for somebody to blame. And that's really the story of Wall Street Bets. Uh, There was a good quote from the Wall Street Journal. uh, Sorry, from Market Watch. Uh, But since January, the success of Wall Street Bets has become an albatross with the board's moderators coming under fire for what many of the board's 10.6 million users saw as inconsistent enforcement of the rules and the growing sense that moderators were playing it too safe in favor of angering Wall Street and regulators. It's also rampant speculation that the size and popularity of Wall Street bets made it susceptible to bad actors creating pump-and-dump schemes by spamming old conversation threads and twi- ticker-specific posts that gave the appearance of new social media interest in the stock. No kidding. Who would have thought that some nefarious individual would take advantage of a bunch of newbie investors on Wall Street bets and do pump-and-dump schemes? Can't imagine that there would be somebody that would do that, Right? There's a, if you don't have to remember, there's a guy named Bernie Madoff that scammed people out of $50 billion. <laughs> you know, whenever there is activity of a speculative nature, somebody will always be there to take advantage of somebody else. Um, but, the, you know, this is the, the point. As we go back to, to kind of looking at some of our Google trends, you know, Wall Street bets led the exodus of users really from the Robinhood trading app. Now Robinhood's about to try to go public. Now the tables have turned because investors now have lost lost money. The excitement's died down, and they're having to go back to work because the stimulus check paycheck party is now dying out, right? In fact, if you take a look at the interest in stimulus checks, that has virtually gone away. People are aware that no more stimulus is coming at this point. Same thing, uh, but conversely, the number of people looking for remote jobs is on the rise, so in other words, they realize that stimulus is running out. Well, I guess I better go back to work, so I'm going to start looking for a job. More people are looking for remote jobs. They like this idea of working from home. But, you know, the point here is, is that in retail investors are all in. And as Sam Soval once said, if everybody's optimistic, who's left to buy? And that's kind of the point here is that when everybody's bought in, right? I've, I'm fully invested at this point. I've got nothing else to buy with. When we reach that point, that's where markets have a lot more trouble going up. And, and that's really kind of the, the point of the market. You know, wealthy Americans are very optimistic right now about their long-term returns. Uh, there was a new survey out from the Texas recently um, looking at the expectations of wealthy investors over the course of the next year. And they are expecting now annual rates of return of 17% or more. The long-term historical average is 8 So, people are a little bit excited about what's going on in the markets. And that's really the, the point here of all this is that market psychology is what drives market bubbles. And when you reverse that psychology, that's where markets get into trouble. Be right back after the break. Don't go away.
0: Listening to the Real Investment Show. You could be one of the seven in ten people requiring long term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than $7,600 a month? Our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long term care. Long term care. Register at realinvestmentadvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long term care. July 8th at noon, realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show.
1: This morning, I'm your host Lance Roberts. So, I've got an interesting question here. Um, usually, I do questions at the end of the show, but um, this was kind of an interesting point. Uh, the question was because I was talking earlier about earnings this quarter are going to look really, really good because we're comparing it to kind of the shutdown of the economy in quarter two of last year. So, we've got these very big, excuse <clears> me, <throat> jumps in earnings growth. That are very exciting at this point, right? People are like, "Man, we've got we're gonna have this massively strong earnings growth, so we got to pay up for it." So the question was, is what do we? What happens if we look back to earnings in 2019 versus 2020? Kind of where are we? And that's really the right question to ask, but it's not the completely right question to ask. And the the reason is because what we think we're going to get in earnings. And what turned out to be the case are often two very different things. And what I mean by that is, if you go back to 2019, at the beginning of 2019, we were expecting very, very strong rates of of earnings growth through the end of the year, right? And in 2019 and 2020... So at the beginning of 2019, we start to project forward. And we say, okay, by the end of 2021, earnings are going to be $170 a share. Well, we didn't get to $170 a share in 2020. Right? We had a big contraction in earnings. Sorry, I said $170 a share in earnings. Now we're expecting that earnings this year are going to be back at $170 a share. So while earnings will be higher than they were in 2019 on an expectation forward basis, the expectation is only back to where it was in 2019 had the pandemic never happened. But yet the market is 40% higher than it was back then. So in other words, what I'm saying is is that earnings are priced in for the best possible outcome at this point. And so companies really have to meet these earnings just to justify their current valuations, much less have to justify their forward valuations. And, And in fact... If you take a look at the S and P valuation based on two-year forward earnings estimates, is at the highest level now, as it was back in 1999. But earnings are dramatically higher, but it's because prices have risen even more than earnings. Uh, But a good example of this, I I published an article back in um, April. So this is this chart's a little bit dated. I haven't updated it yet because we're just we just really kind of got through the end of uh, the first quarter reporting reporting, re, pff, reporting season. I'll spit that out, and so I haven't updated the analysis just yet. So again, as we get into second quarter here, uh, sorry, third quarter here a little bit, I'll update everything for the second quarter because we'll have all the final numbers are in. So this is a little bit dated here, but the point is is that the black line was the estimates for 2020 and 2021 in January of this year. In April, projections were coming up sharply, but were lower than even where they were in January of this year. What we'll see at the end of 2022 is estimates that are only slightly higher than where they were originally expected to be at the beginning. And this is the problem with all these estimates is that these estimates are always overly exuberant. To begin with, there's a a chart that uh, gets put out by Yardini Research every now and then. And he goes back and he posts earnings estimates, analyst estimates going back in time. And analysts are always overly exuberant about their estimates. They always come out high and they always get revised down. So the point is, is that if you're paying for estimates today— And they say, great, you're going to buy a stock today, and and the market is currently priced at 25 times earnings, and based on forward PE, that should be uh, forward earnings, that PE should drop to somewhere around 19. The problem is, is by the time you get to that point in the future, you're still at 25 or 26 times PE because earnings fell. Earnings are always about 30 percent higher on the estimates than they actually turn out to be. Now, why is that the case? That's because Wall Street analysts are are putting out earnings for their clients, not for you. And their clients are the companies. And if I want to retain my investment banking business on Wall Street, which is where my revenue comes from, You know, doing the Robinhood deals, doing those type of SPAC deals, those type of things. That's where I generate hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue doing primary offerings, secondary offerings, investment banking activities. In order to keep those guys happy, I've got to make sure their stock price stays up. So I have to overly push earnings to give a positive bias to the stock. This is why if you take a look at buy, sell, hold ratings, there are no sell ratings virtually on stocks. They're all buy ratings. You know, there's less holds but more than sells. There's very few sells. There's a few holds and a lot of buys on stocks. Most stocks are buy-rated stocks. Should I buy this stock? Yeah, buy it. Why? Because I need you to keep the stock price up because it makes my corporate client happy. Wall Street is a marketing machine. They're not an investment machine. They produce product. They sell it to you. That's how they make money. And if their corporate client comes in and says, hey, I'm AMC and I would really like to take advantage of all these retail investors that are bidding up my stock price, I need to do a secondary offering of $100 million, $200 million, whatever it is. I want to sell more of my company stock to those retail investors. You know, Wall Street should say, you know, your company's not really that good. I mean, you know, I went to I took my daughter a good example, right? We're you know, pandemic's supposedly over for the most part. We're all supposed to be going back out to the world, right, doing stuff. So I took my daughter to go see F9 this weekend. She wanted to go see it. There was me, her, and four other people in the full theater. Now, how is AMC supposed to stay in business with six people in a theater, Now I will be going to the movie. I'm going to report back to you on this on Monday because on Friday Black Widow comes out, and all my kids are demanding I take them to the movie to see it. This is a family tradition. We see all the Marvel movies, so we will be going to the theater to see Marvel. This is the first real blockbuster movie that's been released since we opened up the economy. So I'll report back on Monday exactly how many people are in the theater. I don't suspect. Now I may be surprised because it's a Marvel movie and it's Black Widow, I may be surprised. Maybe there's a full theater. I highly suspect there won't be. But the point is, is that if I was truly doing what was best for my retail clients, I would have told AMC, no, I'm not going to subject my retail clients to potentially a money-losing company. Really don't want to do the secondary offering for you. Now, do you think that's what Wall Street did? Of course not. They were like, you want to do a secondary offering and sell it to all these losers over here? You bet. Uh, We're going to charge you $100 million to do that or whatever the number was. And we're going to put that secondary offering out. And they did it in a heartbeat. Wall Street's not out there for you, right? They're out there for themselves and for their corporate clients, which is where they make their money, investment banking. But the point is, is estimates are always high and they get ratcheted down Into reality. And there's very few periods in history where analysts were on the low side to begin with. And you had estimates rising up and staying that way. So this is the thing to remember about earnings in general, but most importantly, when even when comparing year-over-year earnings, we have to go back and compare to what the analysts were saying at the beginning of 2019, saying, okay. What were the estimates at the beginning of 2019 for this year? It's the same level, right? We're all talking about this massive recovery in earnings. We're not recovering in earnings. All we're doing is getting back to where the analysts thought earnings were going to be at the beginning of 2019. And you've paid up for that. You're not getting a bargain. But this is the thing that we don't talk about in the media, right? This is the, this is the well-kept secret. That you have already paid for earnings that you didn't get. And you're now now getting them back. Real quick, just as an example, about to hit a break. What does 40 times earnings mean? 40 times earnings mean that if you're paid your pro rata share of every dollar the company earns, before all the write-offs and all the other nonsense, It'll take you 40 years to get your money back. That's what 40 times earnings means. And we are paying 40 times earnings for stocks regularly across the board. NVIDIA, we're paying nearly 30 times price to sales. It's insane. You will never make your money back in the stock other than a speculative short-term trade. But that's what we do now, right? That's part of the markets. Be right back after the break. Answer your questions. Wrap up the show.
0: Edge of the world and all the western civilization the Sun may rise in the east at least itself in a final location It's understood that Hollywood sells California You're listening to The Real Investment Show. You could be one of the seven in ten people requiring long-term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than $7,600 a month? Our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long-term care. Long-term care. Register at realinvestmentadvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care. July 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 8th at noon, realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show.
1: And welcome back to the show this morning. Uh, Get ready to open up this morning. Markets are going to open a little flat uh bitcoins up a little bit this morning at thirty-four 10 10-year treasuries about 1.42 percent down just a, a smidge this morning dow down that's 30 points down nasdaq's flat s&p's flat so i mean not not a whole lot of excitement here in the markets um so this is well here this, let me just get into a couple of questions here that we got this morning um uh, First question was, is what might happen to buybacks should the Fed discuss any tapering? So, buybacks are not so much about Fed tapering. Buybacks are about a company trying to maintain their earnings estimates so that they can continue to get support from the markets. So, what does that mean? Just, uh, let's just... ABC company is supposed to earn a dollar per share. And they've got two shares outstanding. Okay? And they look at their book and this is this is really just an example. <laughs> okay, so they have two shares outstanding, they're supposed to earn a dollar dollar a share, right? And they earn 50 cents on the number of shares they've got outstanding. And they go, Oh my gosh, we're gonna miss earnings. Now if I'm if I miss earnings, my stock price is gonna get pummeled. And since I issued the one share, I sold one share out to the public and one share I issued to the CEO, right? And if I come in and I miss earnings, then the share price is gonna get cut in half, right? CEO doesn't like that idea. So he says, okay, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to buy back my one share that's out there in the public. We'll buy it back. Now, technically, they're private, so don't start emailing me. But they buy back their one share, They report earnings. And guess what? There's only one share outstanding, so they earn a dollar per share. That's functionally what goes on in the markets. Now, let me let me clear up another misnomer for you. You're going to read a lot of articles about how share buybacks or a return of capital to shareholders, isn't that wonderful? Companies are doing you a favor <laughs> and buying back your shares. No, they're not. They're not giving you anything. What is? Let's talk about what is a return of capital to shareholders. So, as a company, I earn money and I have shareholders. How do I return capital back to shareholders? A dividend. Right? So I have my dividend, I pay it out to my shareholders, and all my shareholders get a return of capital as a dividend on their stock. Buyback is not a return of capital to shareholders. Here's why. If it is a return of capital to shareholders and I buy your share, so you've got one share of my ABC company, right? And I say, I'll buy your share back. And you say, okay, I'll sell you my share back. I give you money, you give me your share. You no longer have shares in the company. I have returned capital to you, but all I did was buy your share back. So now you've got cash and I've got your stock. So technically, yes, I did return capital to you, but you can do that at any point in the market, any day, any moment while the market is open. You can sell your shares. That's not a return of capital to you, that's just you selling your shares. Who does benefit from share buybacks? Now, remember, when you bought your shares, you paid cash for your shares. And so when your shares or when you sold your shares, you got your capital back from selling your shares plus your gain. As a corporate insider, I was granted shares. They wanted me so bad to come work for their company because I'm a really good guy that they said, look, we're going to give you a salary of a million dollars a year and we're going to give you... 50,000 shares of stock. We're going to grant it to you. So I got stock for free. Then the company says, Hey, I'm going to buy back stock. Who do you think buy back? Who do you think sells their shares mostly in terms of stock buybacks? Would you be surprised to find out that it's the insiders of companies? SEC investigation into this very matter discovered the same. It was the insiders that were selling their shares back. So stock buybacks are not a return of capital to shareholders. It is a function of enriching corporate executives and C-suites, right? And that's just the way it's always been. And so back to the question, when the Fed begins to taper, will it affect buybacks? The answer is yes, it will from this standpoint only, is that when they start to announce their taper, the stock market is going to start to decline. There's less incentive for companies to buy back shares during a declining market. But at the end of the day, they're going to continue to buy back shares in order to ensure that they can meet their earnings estimates. And as long as estimates remain overly exuberant as they are now, it will require more and more share buybacks to meet those estimates. So good question, but that's kind of where we are. Um, <laughs> somebody said somebody made a comment on here is yeah, we drank uh, water out of garden hoses and he's i was talking earlier about the things we did growing up shooting each other with bb guns and not whining about it and not wearing helmets and i, I even noted in the article yeah we drank water out of garden hoses <laughs> so
0: it's just the best in the
1: summertime it, it is it is and we played in ditches full of water with no what no no telling what was in it i mean crawled in sewers and that's why baby boomers don't get sick <laughs> just saying <laughs> they may not be the brightest bunch but they don't get sick <laughs> anyway uh keep going here with our questions this morning um talking about reverse market psychology in 1999 to 2000 kind of what caused the dot-com crash you never know what's going to cause the reversal in psychology. Could be an event, could be an action, could be something. And, and it's always kind of the unexpected, exogenous event that creates the problem. Now, when you go back to 1999 in particular, that was a dot-com boom. Most people will tell you that, oh well, the reason the market crashed is because the Fed was hiking interest rates, and that's partly true. They were tightening policy, but that just just hiking rates doesn't necessarily cause a market to unwind. The market, the the Fed was hiking rates long before the market peaked and declined. Hiking interest rates and tightening monetary policy does. Inhibit the growth of the market And it does ultimately correspond With peaks in markets But there's generally some other events That are going along at the same time That are a function of keeping interest rates Too low for far too long And we kind of forget about When we look back You know, at 1999 We go, oh, it's the reason the dot-com crash Came because there's a bunch of You know, money-losing companies And the Fed was hiking rates Okay, fair enough but you kind of forgot about Enron, WorldCom, Global Crossing, Lucent, all the other sham companies that were going on at the time that started to come apart at the seams right at the beginning of 2000. And the, the kind of the pinnacle of that moment was Enron. And all of a sudden, the whole sham of Enron came unglued. And so it's always more than just one thing. It's a culmination of things. Again, you know, market peaks and crashes are always the same. You know, let me back that up. Let me, let me rephrase that. Everybody says this time is different. Every time is different. 1999, 2000 was different than 2000, 2007, uh, 2008. The next crisis crash will be different than it was back in either of those two. The ingredients are all the same. Leverage, speculation, this uh, belief this time is different. Low interest rates, Fed accommodation, All the, those are all the same. And they all result in the same outcome. What is different is the trigger that causes it. And that could be the Fed beginning to hike interest rates and taper the balance sheet. Could be something totally unexpected. And most likely, it'll be something credit-related, as we saw back in uh, 2007, 2008, right? We had Bear Stearns. That was a shot across the bow. Hey, something's wrong here. But the markets didn't crash right away. In fact, after Bear Stearns, markets went to all-time highs. Everybody was like, ah, see, Bear Stearns, That is nothing. No big deal. Markets are fine. Everything uh, subprime is contained, as Ben Bernanke said eloquently at the time. September of that year, everything comes apart at the seams because Lehman is forced into bankruptcy. Now, that will never happen again. The Federal Reserve and the government will never force a financial institution into bankruptcy ever again. And this is why the, 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 the hypocrisy Of the Fed stress test are saying that banks are financially solvent. They have enough capital to withstand a downturn of 50% of the markets and a a rise in unemployment to 10%. They'll be just fine. Except every time we have a crisis in the markets, like a pandemic, we have to bail them out. But I hear the music, so I guess I have to just end on that note. But I do enjoy uh, spending time with you this morning. We'll be back tomorrow, of course. It'll be the Wednesday edition already. This week's just flying by, already halfway through the week. Amazing what a holiday you'll screw up. Uh, be back tomorrow with you, of course, as always. And uh, have a great day. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Get our latest blog post. Is the retail rampage over? We go through the data on that in today's article at the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Have a great day. We'll see you tomorrow.
0: Monday, 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 always Sunday, in a rich man's world. The Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet. Sign up for the Real Investment Report now at realinvestmentadvice.com.
1: It's a rich man's world.